And if you've got your Bibles with, me, with, with you this morning, I invite you to turn to Exodus chapter 11, and we're going to see what God asked Moses to go and share with Pharaoh for the final plague. So it's in Exodus chapter 11, Exodus chapter 11, verse 4 through to 6. So Exodus 11, verse 4 through to 6. So we see, so Moses said, this is so Moses before Pharaoh, thus says the Lord, about midnight I will go out in the midst of Egypt, and every firstborn in the land of Egypt shall die, from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sits on his throne, even to the firstborn of the slave girl who is behind the handmill, and all the firstborn of the cattle. There shall be such a cry throughout all the land of Egypt, such as there has never been, nor ever will be again. Again, as I said, the God that is revealed through the Exodus is a God of power, of wrath, and of war. And when I think about this, it makes me ask the question, where is the gentle, grace-filled Savior that we see in the New Testament? When we come to the New Testament, we see Jesus, he, he walks around and he sees people and he has his compassion on them, and he's He's gentle with people, he touches the leper, he heals, he heals the blind, he's, he's going around, and, and his life, the life of Jesus seems very different to this, this, this God in the book of Exodus who's saying, I will kill your firstborn son. And so the question is, where is the gentle, grace-filled Savior that we find in the New Testament? Where do we find that in the Old Testament? Where do we find that amidst all of the blood and the, and the hail and the darkness? Turn with me. Stay in Exodus, Exodus chapter 12. And what we're going to do is um, we're going to see that in the midst of all this chaos that we can find the gentle, grace-filled Savior in Egypt. So Exodus chapter 12, and we're, I'm going to read... A, a fairly large passage here from verse 3 right to 13. And as we read through this, I want you to sort of in your mind be trying to picture what's being described here. So this is the instructions God then gave to Israel. It says, Tell all the congregation of Israel that on the tenth day of this month, every man shall take a lamb according to their father's houses, a lamb for a household. And if the household is too small for a lamb... Then he and his, his nearest neighbor shall take according to the number of persons. According to what each can eat, you shall make your count for the, for the lamb. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male, a year old. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats. And you shall keep it until the 14th day, day of this month, when the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs at twilight." Then they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and the lintel of the houses in which they eat it. They shall eat the flesh that night, roast it on the fire with unleavened bread and bitter herbs they shall eat it. Do not eat any of it raw or boiled in water, but roasted, its head and its legs and its inner parts. And you shall let none of it remain until the morning. Anything that remains until the morning you shall burn. In this manner you shall eat it with your belt fastened, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand. And you shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. For I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and on all the gods of 
Egypt, I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. And no plague will befall you to, des- to, destroy, to destroy you. There it was. Did you see it? The gentle, grace-filled Savior. What Jesus is saying to do is to gather in little houses and then get each house a lamb. And then you are to kill this lamb and you are to paint your house with the blood of this lamb. Does that sound like a gentle, a gentle picture of God there? Or does this seem to be... Does this seem to be sounding more like this violent, powerful God that we, that we saw in, in the plagues? Well, let's unpack this a little bit more. I've got up here on the, on the screen five words. It was actually six if you include the last two being two words. But five aspects of what is taking place here. Number one, the, the Israelites are slaves of Slaves of Pharaoh. So they're, they're captive. They're, they're stuck there. They're helpless. They have this problem, and they are in need of some sort of deliverance. So God comes along, and God says, all right, I want you to take a lamb. And this lamb wasn't just any sort of lamb, but it was a perfect lamb, a lamb without blemish. And that perfect, perfection of that lamb represented the lamb's innocence. Okay, It's perfect innocence that it doesn't deserve to die. There's, there's nothing within this lamb that means that it, should, it should, should be killed. Then, But then it says, you, it's not enough just to kill this lamb, but you need to apply the death of this lamb to your household. And the way that they did that was they, they, got, they got the blood and they painted on the, on the sides of their, of their door, of the doorposts of, of, of their house and on, and on the top as well. So that, that was them saying, we are putting our trust and our belief and our faith in this blood of this lamb, in this sacrifice, we are putting our belief in that as, as, as our salvation from this, this great plague that is going to take place. And then it says that when the, destroying, the destroyer comes to kill the firstborn in each of those houses, it is going to come to those houses that have the blood and it is going to pass over those places. Now, something that's interesting that I sort of jumped out to me as I was studying this this week is that every single house was going to have a death in that household. Every single house had a death in that household. But what was different was, was that death the lamb? Or was that death the firstborn in your house? And so this took place, and when we get to the end of of, of of, of what happened afterwards. So Exodus chapter 11 and verse 29, when the, the plague came, this is, what, this is how it unfolded. It says, At midnight the Lord struck down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sat on his throne to the firstborn of the captive who was in the dungeon and all the firstborn of the livestock. And Pharaoh rose up in the night, he and all his servants and all the Egyptians, and there was a great cry in Egypt, for there was not a house where someone was not dead." Imagine that. Imagine the, 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 just hearing that cry just resound across, echo across the, the land of Egypt. Verse 31. Then he summoned Moses and Aaron by night and said, Up, go out of, from among my people, both you and the people of Israel, and go, 
Serve the Lord as you have said. Take your flocks and your herds as you have said, and be gone and bless me also. So their houses were passed over, and what resulted as a, after that? There was a new life. They were taken from their old life of slavery, and they were delivered into their new life of freedom. Now, does this sound like... Does this sound... Is this starting, starting to sound a little bit more like the gentle grace fields picture that we get in the New Testament? I want to read for you a verse in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 18 to 19. And it says, the Apostle Peter says, Knowing that you were ransomed. Now the word ransom basically means to be... To, it's, it's, a ransom is the price paid to deliver someone from captivity. And it says, knowing that you were ransomed, speaking of all of us, from the futile ways inherited from your, father, from your forefathers. Now here it's not talking about the futile ways of physical slavery, but it's talking about what's been passed on from Adam to every single one of us. Knowing that you were brought back from being captive to sin, this is including all of us, inherited from your forefathers, you were brought back not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ. Here we again, we see the blood at the, at the forefront, at the center of how we are being ransomed, how we are being redeemed. But it's not the blood of an actual lamb, but it's the blood of Christ. And it says, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. I should say spot there. So let's go back to our our, um, what we had up on the screen. Slave, lamb, blood, salvation, new life. This story of, that the Passover told, that, this, that this, this ceremony told, this, when they were in Egypt and they were delivered from this plague, is the story of salvation. It's the gospel story. And this is how our story fits into this. Firstly, we are not slaves to Pharaoh, but we are slaves to sin. And God has come to deliver us from that. We too need a lamb. But it's not a physical lamb, but it's the lamb also known as Jesus Christ. And Jesus was the lamb without blemish, the lamb without spot, the perfect lamb, because he was the sinless lamb. He was the one who was innocent. He was the one who never deserved death. Now, in their household, it wasn't enough just to have a dead lamb in their household, but that death then had to be applied to their lives. And for us, we, it's not enough for us just to, to realize that Jesus died upon the cross 2,000 years ago, but we too need to apply the death of Jesus to our lives. And we do this through faith. We do this through putting our trust and belief in Jesus. Just like they painted up on the on the door frames, we put our faith in the blood by simply trusting and believing in what Jesus has done for us. And the result of this, something is passed over. Not our household, but our sins are passed over. And we receive forgiveness from our sins, which results in being born again, receiving new life, freedom from being slaves um, to sin. And so, where is the gentle, grace-filled Savior? 
in the midst of all of these plagues and of the, the blood and the violence and the death, the grace-filled grace Savior is front and center. The Old Testament God is the same as the New Testament God. Grace is right there at the, at the heart of what was taking place in the Exodus. Now, it wasn't, it wasn't God's intention for the Passover to be just a once-off occasion. But God instructed the Israelites to year after year to gather together and to have a ceremony, which they called the Passover ceremony, which they would eat the lamb, they would eat unleavened bread, they would eat the bitter herbs, which were representative of, of their suffering in, in Egypt. And they were to come together and do that. And when they did this, it was pointing in two directions. When they came together and they celebrated the Passover meal, it pointed back, pointed back to how God, in his love and grace, delivered them from, from um, Egypt. But also, it pointed forward to how the Messiah would come and ultimately deliver them from their sin. So year after year, for 1,500 years, not necessarily did they always faithfully keep the Passover, but for 1,500 years, the Passover was central to what, to what the Jews did. And in, in their Jewish year, the Passover was there reminding them of the deliverance from the past and pointing forward to their deliverance in the future. And along comes Jesus. And I was thinking about this this week, that for Jesus' entire life, he would have been keeping the Passover. Year after year, after year. And we see this symbol, this lamb, which is pointing forward to what Jesus would do, suddenly is being partaken of by the, the real lamb who's come to fulfill everything that that lamb um, pointed forward to. And so we see Jesus, year after year, he's, he's partaking of the very meal that was pointing to him and pointing to the world, what Jesus was going to do ultimately for our sins. And I want to take you to Luke chapter 22. And in Luke chapter 22, we see the final Passover meal that Jesus was going to partake of in his life here on earth. Luke chapter 22. And we're going to read verse 14 through to... Verse 20. So if you have your Bibles, Luke chapter 22, verse 14 through 20. And it says this. And when the hour came, he reclined at, table, at the table and the apostles with him. And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover, Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And he took a cup. And when he had given thanks, he said, Take this and divide it amongst yourselves. For I tell you that from now on I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, the cup after they had eaten, saying, This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. As I read through this, it makes me wonder what would have been going through the mind of Christ as he sat there and had this final meal with his disciples. 
Jesus would have been there, and he would have been seeing in all these symbols a picture of what he was about to do. And he would be preparing himself mentally for the greatest sacrifice that the world has ever known. He would be thinking about the, the, the greatest act of humility where the, the, the King of Kings and the God of this universe would step down upon a cross and die for our sins. That would have been absolutely seen by Jesus as he was, going, as he was um, partaking of these, these symbols and as he was preparing himself for this act of humility. But what was going through the, the mind of the disciples in this time? It tells us in verse 24. Luke 22, verse 24 says, A dispute also arose among them as to which of them was to be regarded as the greatest. So here we see this incredible contrast. We see Jesus contemplating about to make the greatest act of, of humble submission and sacrifice that the world has ever known. And at the same time, the disciples are there. They're bickering. They're fighting over who's going to be the greatest, who's going to sit at the best place in, when they're taking, partaking of, this, of the Passover. And their minds are not filled with humility, but their minds are filled with pride. And something that else that was going on in, this, in the scene here is when they'd come in to take, partake of the Passover, and, and there was something that was custom for, for in, in that time, in the time of Jesus, that when people would gather together like this, that a slave or a, a ser- one of the servants would come and he would have the task of washing everyone's feet. No one liked that task because feet were dirty and they'd been walking around just open in sandals and and picking up all the grime from the day. And so when they would come together, they would have a servant who would go and would wash everyone's feet. But with this mindset with the disciples, and they're trying to work out who is the greatest amongst them, none of them were going to humble themselves and, take, and assume the lowest position. And so they sat there, they laid there, awkwardly, with this thing in their mind, who is going to be the one who is going to humble themselves and wash each other's feet? Who would that be? We find this in John chapter 13. In John chapter 13 and verse 3, we see something absolutely shocking take place. It says, John 13, verse 3, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God, he rose from supper, he laid aside his outer garments, and taking a towel, he tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. And he came to Peter, who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? The disciples were in shock. They were horrified by what Jesus was doing. Here, Jesus, the the one who was clearly the greatest amongst all of them, he was the one who assumed the humble position and washed each other's feet. Now, why did Jesus do this? Could it be that he was teaching the disciples 
an important lesson about the way that we approach the Passover meal, by the way that we approach the Lord's Supper, by the way that we approach our Christian experience, by the way that we approach the Christ, that we are to approach it with humility. Now think back to the, to the, the, the Passover in, in Egypt. As I said, it was easy for people to, to have their firstborn saved. All they had to do was get that lamb, kill that lamb, and, and then put the blood up on the doorpost. But why were there so many deaths throughout the land of Egypt? Why was it that Pharaoh, his firstborn child, died upon that night? Could it have something to do with pride? I've got a, a quote from the book Patriarchs and Prophets here. And it says, Many of the Egyptians who had been led to acknowledge the God of the Hebrews as the only true God, and, and these, it says, and, or had done that, and these now begged to be permitted to find shelter in the homes of Israel when the destroying angel should pass through the land. They were gladly welcomed, and they pledged themselves henceforth to serve the God of Jacob and to go forth from Egypt with his people. Salvation was not only available to the Israelites on that, on that day, but to all the Egyptians as well. But what would it have taken for that pride-filled Pharaoh to go and enter one of those Egyptian, I mean those Israelite homes? Would it have taken humility? So Pharaoh was not ready for this, to receive the salvation because he was filled with pride. Because when we come to Christ, we need to acknowledge our need and we need to acknowledge that we are in need of a Savior. And so we come before Christ humbly and seeking um, his salvation. So, on, so back to the Last Supper with Jesus and his disciples. They're, they're bickering over, over who's the greatest. And this is what the Patriarchs and Prophets says about in this situation. It says, When Jesus girded himself with a towel to wash the dust from their feet, he desired by that very act to wash the alienation, jealousy, and pride from their hearts. With the spirit they then had, not one of them was prepared for communion with Christ. Now I love this because it reveals to us the reason that why, we, why we do foot washing, which we're about to do in a moment now. Because the very act that Jesus did, he then asked us, to do in his example as well. He commands us, if you read on the chapter, he commands us to follow his, his example. And one of the reasons why we begin the, the, the Lord's Supper communion with foot washing is because we want to prepare our own hearts to be ready to receive the salvation that Jesus wants to give to us. And so Jesus, he... So as, as, we're wash, as we're about to particip participate in the foot washing, I want you to, to, to contemplate this and to be thinking and asking God to, to prepare yourself for what is going to follow. And as you think about how Jesus laid aside his outer garments and picked up the towel to wash the disciples' feet, also think about how Jesus laid aside the throne in heaven to pick up the cross so that he can wash away the sin from our lives. And so that he can transform us to be people who reflect that same sort of service to those around us as well. 
So what we're going to do now, we're going to wash one another's feet. Now, if you're new and you haven't done this before, you might be thinking, this is a crazy ceremony. I didn't come here expecting to wash someone else's feet. That sounds like a bit of a humiliating thing to do. Well, maybe it is. It's probably humiliating for Jesus to do it for his disciples. But the reason we do this is we're following the command and the example of Jesus, humbling ourselves in order to prepare ourselves to receive the bread and the wine and the sacrifice of Jesus. The first exodus began with the death of a lamb. And the second exodus, the new exodus, began with the the death of Christ. The first exodus took them from being slaves, took them into the wilderness, and as they headed towards the promised land, the new exodus takes us from being sinners to salvation and is heading us towards the, the hope of eternal life with Jesus and eventually on the, on the new earth. The first exodus began with a Passover meal, and so it was fitting that the second exodus also began with a meal as well. And this meal we know as the Lord's Supper. The new Passover meal that we have, the, the Lord's Supper, is, contains a lot of the elements of the, of the past, but it's been transformed some, somewhat. For example, we don't have a lamb. Isn't, there's not a lamb here up on here on the table. And the reason is because the lamb pointed forward to what Jesus would do upon the cross, whereas for us, we look back to what Jesus has done upon the cross. So there's no need for those sacrifices. But there's two items, there's two symbolic aspects of the Lord's Supper that are highlighted, and that is the, the unleavened, unleavened bread. Unleavened because it represents Christ's body, which was sinless, as well as the, the wine, which in this case is non-fermented wine, which was also called wine in, the, in, in New Testament times. Now, these two things are just very fitting symbols because food and drink is what brings life to us. And it's through the, the bread, which is symbolic of the body of Christ, and the wine, which is symbolic of the blood of Jesus. It is the body of Christ and it's the blood of Jesus, the sacrifice of Jesus that brings us spiritual life and eternal life. Um, and so... Another aspect of these is that in order for the bread to bring us life, it has to be destroyed. It has to be broken. It's chewed up in our mouth and it's then digested. For Jesus to bring life to us, he had to be destroyed upon the cross. For the blood to give us, for the the drink to give us um, life, it has to be spilled out of the cup into our mouth. And for Jesus to give us life, it had to be, his blood had to be spilled upon the cross. So as we partake of the bread and and the wine, I want us to think about three things. I want us to think past, I want us to think present, and I want us to think future. As you partake of the bread and the wine, send your mind back into the past and reflect upon and remember what Jesus has done for us. How he died upon the cross, how he was, he was beaten, he was whipped, he was tortured, he had the crown of thorns upon his head, the nails through his hands and through his feet. And on top of that, the weight of the sins of the world being burden, burdening, um, 
weighing down upon his soul, I want you to think back of what Jesus has done and the price Jesus has paid to bring us salvation. I want you to think past. I also, also want you to think present. I want you to think, what does this mean to me today? Remember, in the time of Israel, it didn't matter that there was a dead lamb in, in the house if it wasn't painted upon the doorposts. And so for us, it doesn't matter for us just the fact that Jesus died in the past, but it has to be applied to our lives as well. And back then, it didn't matter if you were, had served God your whole life or for one day. It didn't matter if you were male or female. It didn't matter if you are Egyptian or if you were um, a slave, Israelite. It didn't matter if you'd lived a life of good deeds or a life of, of, of all sorts of horrible things. The only thing that mattered was, are you trusting in the blood of the lamb upon your doorpost? And for us, the only thing that matters is, are we trusting in the blood of Christ to cover our sins and to save us from the punishment which sin deserves, which is death. So I want you to think past, I want you to think present, but also think future. And as we partake of this, we think forwards and we remember and we look forward to the fact that Jesus promised that he's not going to partake of this again until he partakes of it with us in the kingdom anew. So we look forward to the hope, we look forward to eternal life, we look forward to, to ultimate face-to-face communion with Jesus in heaven and then on the new earth as, as a body of believers forever and ever and ever. So as we partake of the bread and the wine, I encourage you to think past, think present, and think future. Now who can partake of this? It's open to anyone who understands what Jesus has done for them on the cross and wants to put their trust in them. If you're, you don't have to be a Seventh-day Adventist, but if you're someone who believes in what, in, in what Jesus has done for you, then we invite you to partake of our service this morning. And how old do you be? As long as you're of age that you are old enough to understand what this symbolizes, we encourage you to partake of this as well. And so what I'd like to do is invite Leon to say a prayer of blessing upon the bread and the wine, and then we'll just distribute it out to everyone. Stay standing with me as we pray. Father in heaven, as we participate in this this ceremony, this ritual, this service, Lord, Lord, we are just overwhelmed with the incredible love that you have, Lord. From start to finish, you are the gentle, grace-filled Savior. Lord, we look back on the cross and we think of what you've done for us, Lord, and we thank you, Lord. We thank you for loving us so much that you put yourself aside, that you didn't just lay aside your outer garments and pick up the towel, Lord, but you laid aside the the glories of heaven for a cross, Lord. We thank you for that. Lord, today we we recommit ourselves to you, Lord. As As we partook, Lord, we were saying, Lord, we accept, Lord. We apply what you've done in faith, Lord, in belief to our lives, Lord. We partake of your sacrifice, Lord, and we we just... In humbly, Lord, we just accept your salvation in our lives. And Lord, we look forward to the future. Lord, we can't wait until we can see you face to face. We can only imagine, Lord, begin to imagine what that will be like, Lord. But we just thank you for the hope that we have as Christians, Lord. May this transform our lives. Lord, may the hope that we have be something that compels us to go out into the world and to share it, Lord. We can't wait until we see you face to face. 
Thank you for your sacrifice. And thank you for hope, Lord. And thank you for your love. We pray in the precious name of Jesus Christ. Amen.